So if you have your Bibles this morning, let's take them and turn to Acts chapter 4 today, book of Acts, as we continue our Game Changer series. Um, we'll leave in the Game Changer series all the way up to Easter, and uh, then on Good Friday of Easter, we'll be having the cross service here in, uh, in this sanctuary, and we're looking forward to that. You began to think about who you're going to invite to that, as well as our multiple services on Sunday morning and Saturday night of Easter weekend. Then Saturday night, we'll do the cross service up at the North Campus, the north location at Byron Nelson, and expose that area uh, to the message of the cross. Cross City Church is really taking the cross to the city. It really is doing that on this Easter, uh, Easter weekend coming up. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, we continue our Game Changer series. But uh, before we get into the text, let me say a word or two to you about Dream Sunday. This afternoon, we're having a gathering time called Dream Sunday. We're looking forward to talking about how we're going to be reaching people in the future. And we invite you to come because what we're talking about is not only just for the immediate future, but also for years ahead, five years ahead, 10 years ahead, 20 years down the road. We want your help and we want your ideas. At three o'clock in the chapel, uh, this afternoon. We'll be gathering. I'll share a few thoughts to get us started. Then we'll break into groups where all of us have a chance to participate and chance to dream. Now, tonight is all really about hearing from you, so it's really important that you're there. I anticipate our chapel will be packed for that, and uh, we'll want everybody to participate by you helping us answer some key questions that we have about ministry here, about our facilities here, and about the future. Our architects will be here tonight, not to answer a, a large number of questions because they still have to put some shape to their plans based on what we hear about you tonight. So we are Cross City Church. This is our facility. We're looking forward to how it can be in the future, but we need your input. So I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm very excited about the process. Looking forward to you being here this afternoon about 3 o'clock. Not a marathon session. We'll be through by 4.30. But uh, everybody does have a chance to participate, so be there, all right? If you have your Bibles, you're open to Acts chapter 4. Say amen. amen. All right, most of you have them. I guess that's about 47 of us that have it, okay? Stand with me, and we'll open it up with reading Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is about a game-changing battle. Game-changing battle. The New Testament church, the early New Testament church, is now moving forward. God is giving them amazing favor, amazing opportunity, but... But here is where spiritual battle begins to be very, very evident, as it soon does for anyone who is the tip of the spear with the gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, this is after the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate, the gate called Beautiful. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. And put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That is, about 5,000 men have now come to put their faith and trust in Christ in just these first two messages preached by Peter. I'd say, everybody would say, Peter's on a roll. First message, 3,000 come to faith. The second message, 2,000 come to faith. He's on a roll, trust me. He's in March Madness. He's winning the game because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they placed them in the center, that is of the arena there, they began to inquire by what power 
Or in what name have you done this? Now, that's the wrong question to ask Peter, by the way, because when you begin to ask him, by whose name is this man healed, Peter's ready. He's queued up for message number three, all right? And here it comes. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the elders of the people, if we're on trial here today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He's the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. Now verse 12. Verse 12 may be one of the most glaringly precise verses in all the scripture. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Father, today I would ask you to help us see the clarity of this message of this verse of this truth today. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Game-changing battle. The scenario, scenario is that this man's been healed. Peter is preaching after the healing of the lame man who has leapt and run through the temple, jumped on Peter and John, and they're watching this miracle unfold. They've never seen anything like this before. This is not just a man that's sick, but a man lame from birth. There is no hope for this man, no help for him. But in the name of Jesus, Peter and John called out to him and raised him up. And now he's running, leaping, and running into the temple to worship God. And so Peter preaches, and 2,000 more people come to faith in Christ, and the battle begins. You know, I wish life was like this. I wish life was get it out and lived out in such a way where when we see great things happen, we just keep seeing great things happen. And we don't ever have any opposition. And we don't ever have any difficult times. And we don't have anybody that opposes what we do. I wish life was like that. But as sure as you and I are standing here today, life is not like that. And when we begin to move forward spiritually, there will be a spiritual battle. I remember a number of years ago as a youth minister, this would have been back in 1986 or seven, and uh, actually before then, 1984, we took a group of people to Corvallis, Oregon. We were in a public park in a city in Oregon, and we had organized in that park in order to have a Christian concert, a Christian music concert, and we had about 500 people attend who were just from the surrounding area. And it was designed that I would get up and preach a message and we would give an invitation to see if anyone wanted to come to Christ in that public spot. And it was going well, really well. Big crowd, great music. It was time for me to get up to preach. And I was about two or three minutes into my message when about over here in this section of that 500 people, a man stood up and then a few men stood up. And before long, it was a small crowd that stood up and began trying to shout me down. They began to, to try to create division and tried to create doubt among the crowd. And I, I thought, man, I'm not geared for this. I'm not equipped for this. I'm not sure what I need to be doing, but I know I'm supposed to preach the message of salvation today. And so finally, I just said in the name of Jesus, sit down as loudly as I could in the microphone as though volume would help. It wasn't the volume that helped, but the name of Jesus did help powerfully. They sat down as though they had been shot and they listened to the rest of the message. And that day, many people came to faith in Christ. I'm thankful. But I'm also reminded that spiritual battles take place when we move forward with the gospel. It's always that way. 
This text is the beginning of great persecution for the New Testament church, historically speaking. From this moment on, the disciples were always on notice that someone was out to stop them. They were put in jail. They were in prison. They were beaten. So many things happened to them, but it all began right here. I want to make a statement to you today that will resonate in your life as long as you're here on planet Earth. That's true. Here's the statement. Each spiritual battle is an attempt to silence our witness of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Each spiritual battle that we undergo, whatever spiritual battle happens, it's designed to silence your witness of the sufficiency of Christ. It's designed to suppress your testimony. It's designed to make you be quiet wherever you live, wherever you serve, wherever you work. It's designed to silence your witness for Christ. That's what's happening to these disciples. And it keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening. I want us to look at that line together today and look at this text and how it unfolds. First of all, each spiritual battle that takes place in our life is designed to stop our witness. The spiritual battles began to unfold there in verses 1 through verse 7 that we just read. I want you to notice a couple of things with me. First of all, notice the timing of the verse. As they were speaking. Let me just say, if you're going to open your mouth and tell someone else about the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus Christ, you're always going to be a target. There will always be someone who does not believe you, who does not want you to share that because you are the tip of the spear. You're the light coming into the darkness and you're the tip of the spear for the gospel wherever you are. The moment you began to talk, just like these individuals began to preach, that moment opposition rises up as they were speaking. And yet it's so important for you and I to know this, that our witness is so powerful wherever we are that Satan himself wants to silence us rather than let us have freedom to share the gospel. But I want to remind you today that you're the tip of the spear for the gospel. I want to remind you today that the future of the world rests on the average believer being able to share the message of Jesus Christ. The future of the world doesn't depend on preachers. It doesn't depend on television or any message that comes across uh, that kind of airway, but it depends on you, the people who live next door to those who don't know Christ, those who work with them, those who go to school with them. You are a witness of Jesus Christ, just like these New Testament disciples were, and you're going to have spiritual battles. Notice the timing of it as they began to talk. Notice the direction from which this came. Priests, the temple guard, Pharisees opposed them. Now, there's a couple of things that you and I need to understand about this background for us to know what's happening here. You would think that priests and the Pharisees and the temple guard would be excited about this man who had been healed, who was lame from his mother's birth. All of them had seen him for years and years begging at the gates of a temple, and now he's healed. He's getting up. He's running around. He's leaping. He's worshiping God. And you would think the priest would be happy he's worshiping God. The temple guard's happy he's worshiping God. The Sadducees and Pharisees happy he's worshiping God, but they are not. You need to see that sometimes oppositions come from a political realm, and these religious leaders had become ultra-political. Historically speaking, the Jews had an uneasy peace with the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem. And so these priests, these temple guards, these Pharisees had learned to kind of 
keep from rocking the boat. They'd learn to please the people, and they'd learn to please the Roman authorities at the same time, and that's what they were trying to do. They wanted to minimize the impact of Jesus because as Jesus came through Jerusalem and through Israel itself, all kinds of upheaval was taking place. People were following him. People were saying that he was going to one day be the king, and they didn't like that. It disturbed them. And so they began to have, in a sense, a political process to suppress Jesus. Ultimately, it was the Roman government that put him to death. And now Jesus is risen from the dead. They thought they had him dead, and now he's come back. And it's his name that's healed this lame man. That's why the question was, by whose name have you done this? And I get the sense that they're saying, can't we make this guy, Jesus, go away? And the answer is, no, never will you ever make the name of Jesus go away or the life of Jesus go away. The opposition came from the political spectrum, but it also comes from the religious realm. Part of these who were opposing the preaching of the message of Jesus were Sadducees. The unique thing about the Sadducees is they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, they didn't believe in anything supernatural at all. And so everything that they taught, everything they did, had to do with simply keeping people in line religiously. After all, if God is not supernatural, then all you have is a religious system and keeping people bound into place by keeping observances. And so from the religious realm, it was not good business that Jesus was alive from the dead. What we need to understand today is that the disciples didn't see Jesus as a religious figure. He saw, they saw him as God the Son, as the Son of God, as one to know, as one to follow him, and not just a religious figure and certainly not a political figure in any sense of the word. The timing was unique. The direction this opposition came from was religious and political, and the target was the witness themselves. They placed them in the center, the story says. I want you to imagine, if you would, what the Sanhedrin looked like. It was uh, a bit of a bowl, a bit of a bowl, a bit of a stadium effect in a very small form where the 70 members of the Sanhedrin would, would sit at and stand at uh, uh, steps up to the top of the building, and then there was a stage on the bottom floor, and so the Sanhedrin would meet in a semicircle, and they would put someone that they were questioning in the middle on the floor. So literally, Peter and John were surrounded by these religious leaders, and they were surrounded by these political leaders, and they were being questioned in every sense of the word. Now, I want you to know today that from the very beginning, Christianity has been a movement of people who follow Christ who are often put on the spot and the center of attention when we've never sought to be the center of attention. And when you begin to be a witness for Jesus Christ, people will put you in the middle. They'll question you. They'll make you an object of controversy, an object of rumor, an object of slander and reputation. You can always find an easier life than being a witness of Jesus Christ, but you can never find a more rewarding life than being a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we see these disciples as the tip of the spear, you and I need to know that so are we. And every spiritual battle is designed to keep you silent. Every spiritual battle is an attempt to silence our witness to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8 for just a moment. An attempt to silence our witness. Every spiritual battle you have is designed to make you be quiet. And yet every time you share Christ... You are demonstrating some amazing things about God himself. For example, in verses 8 through 11, 
we see that our witness declares the patience of God. So these religious leaders and these political leaders put Peter and John in the center, but when Peter and John look up at these spiritual and religious and political leaders, they are now proclaiming the message of love and the message of forgiveness and the message that these people had resisted over and over and over. If you read the Gospels, you'll know this. That Jesus came to the Jews. He was a Jew. He was born into their uh, heritage. And the Bible says he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him or did believe him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And when Jesus came back to these people again, and when the message of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the witness of Jesus comes to share with these people who have shut God out, who have shut Jesus out, it demonstrates the patience of God with people who have closed the door. It's extraordinary that God just keeps letting witnesses come to testify about the power of Jesus to people that have long said we don't want to hear it. God's patience is amazing. It's extraordinary. These are the religious leaders that killed the prophets. These are the religious leaders that rejected Jesus. These are the religious leaders that denied the resurrection and still God sends a witness. When I think about the patience of God, first of all, I'm very glad that God is a patient God. Amen? How many of you are glad God's a patient God? Would you raise your hand? You would not be here if it's not for his patience. Neither would I. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter himself says this about the patience of God. He talks about the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. God held back judgment, held back judgment while Noah preached for a hundred years or more while that ark was being built. It was amazing how the patience of God was being demonstrated. Peter also writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you've ever asked yourself the question, why does God let the earth keep going the way it is? Why doesn't Jesus come back? Why doesn't he culminate his kingdom and his glory? And why don't we all go to heaven and just simply be with him? And the reason is the patience of God. And basically the patience of God simply says it's never too late. One is never so far away that he can't save them. We're never too deep in sin for God to forgive us and to rescue us. God is a much better savior than you are a sinner. God is much better at enduring in patience and long suffering than you can possibly imagine. And I keep that as my hope when I think about people that I'm praying for to be saved. And it's been years and years and years and years and they're still not saved. I keep that hope when I think about family members or children who have somehow turned their back on God, and I think, God, you never give up on them. I will never give up on them because of your patience. Aren't you glad God is a patient God? And we have that demonstration here that even though they have physically and personally rejected Jesus, still the patience of God is demonstrated by the witness of the disciples. If you read very far into the book of Acts, you'll see the life of Paul. There's only one way to characterize the life of Paul, and that is he was a religious terrorist. That's what he was. He put people to death. Because he was a religious leader, a member of that same Sanhedrin at some point, and because he had abject hatred for Jesus Christ and those who followed Jesus Christ, he literally put them to death. He was a religious terrorist. 
And yet the patience of God endured towards Paul until that day he was met on the Damascus Road and they're gloriously saved because of the patience of God. At any moment, God could have struck him with lightning. At any moment, God could have wiped him off the face of the earth, but did not do that because God desired that Paul know him. Our witness declares the patience of God, but our witness also declares the love of God. The love of God. These religious leaders are asking about this lame man in the verse 9 and 10, the Bible says, This man has been made well by this name. This man stands here before you in good health. By this name, this man stands before you. Love that line. You see, the love of God broke into this man's life. He was lame from birth. And where no one else could give him hope, no one else could give him help, no one else even looked at him God directed Peter and John to stop. What a picture. It's a picture of a loving God and a loving witness. Because if you go all the way back to his healing, you'll see that Peter and John were headed to prayer, but the disciples stopped. And the Bible makes a, a big point, an emphatic point. They stopped and gazed at him. Led by the Holy Spirit, they were gazing at this man. They were looking at him. They noticed him. And then they reached out a hand and lifted him up. And then God healed him. And this man, this man brought thousands to come hear the message that Peter and John preached because Peter and John loved this man well. Loved this man well. You know, this last week I was looking at this, studying it, and I noticed how often it happens in the Bible. When someone is loved well, they bring many others with them to hear about the one that loved them. The woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and the man that she lived with wasn't her husband, and yet she came to the water well at the same time Jesus did, and Jesus had this extraordinary conversation with her that whole books have been written about. As he has this conversation with her, he loves her, and he demonstrates the love of a father for this woman that was abandoned in so many different ways. At the conclusion of their conversation, she said, Sir, I perceive that you are the Messiah. And because Jesus loved her well, because Jesus revealed who he was to her, this woman went back to the village, and within a few moments, she had the whole village stirred up, and they all came down from the hill upon what the village was down to the well. And when Jesus saw them, the disciples were around him by this point. He said, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields that are white with harvest. I see this in the woman at the well. I see this at the man at the beautiful gate. For someone who is neglected, who is lonely, who is hurt, who is rejected, our attention, our love, our willingness to make it easy to relate to Jesus, our witness of the love of Jesus Christ is powerful. Loving one person well can result in many others coming to faith in Christ. Loving one person well can result in many others coming to faith in Christ. But to do that, we have to love them. To do that, we have to stop. To do that, we have to gaze at them. To do that, we have to remember that we're representatives of Jesus Christ, that the patience of God is always at work, and the love of God is always at work. And we've got to stop as a witness of Jesus and say, it matters to you, it matters to others that you are well loved. I'm going to love you with all the power I can. What a picture of the church. What a picture of Jesus. Have you stopped and looked at the people around you lately? Have you looked at the lonely, at the hurting, at the disenfranchised? Have you, have you looked at the religious? 
Have you looked at those people around you and have you considered that maybe the mission that God gives you is to love them so well that they're going to want to know why it is you love them well, just like they were asking Peter and John, by whose name is this man healed? And you're going to do what Peter and John did. And this name, Jesus, this man is well. In this name, this person is loved. In this name, this person is transformed. Love one person well. It can result in many coming to faith in Christ. We have a story unfolding here and has been for some years of a, of a woman in our church who prayed for her husband for 38 years before he came to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And today, he is a strong believer, strong leader in our church. I've been here 13 years. He came to faith long before that. And I just saw him as one of those strong leaders that probably had been a believer forever. But then I realized, no, no, this is the one his wife prayed for for 38 years, exercising the patience of God and the love of God until finally God saved this man. Hey, you gotta be clapping at this point because this is quite a story. That's what we do. It's what we do. We pray for them. We love them until God brings them to know him. Building relationship with your neighbors, building relationship with relatives, or being long-suffering parents who love your kids even though they're not responding to God. Keep loving, keep loving. Loving one person can well result in many others coming to faith in Jesus. At every spiritual battle, every moment of depression, every time you're disappointed, it's all a spiritual battle designed to make you quiet, designed to keep you from being a vibrant witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Each spiritual battle is an attempt to silence our witness of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And now we're in verse 12. Would you look at verse 12 again? And there is salvation, Peter says, a clear, undebatable Statement: There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Look at what's happening. Peter is full of the Holy Spirit. He utters two absolute negative particles in the statement. If you're digging into the original language, it's not not, but it's absolutely not. Absolutely no one else. Absolutely no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved but Jesus. Absolutely only Jesus Christ. You can't say it any stronger. Peter stood up prophetically, clearly, unmistakably saying, this is the only hope you have. It's the only hope anyone has to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Well, about a year ago, I read a, a survey done by George Barna, research that he has into evangelicals in America today. Let me read something to you that he said. He said, in a mashup of pluralism and universalism, 59% of adults believe that Christians and Muslims, for example, worship the same God, even though they have different names and beliefs regarding God. Americans are less likely to endorse the idea that the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truth, although 43% agree they're different. But most evangelicals conform closely to the percent of Americans who endorse inclusive ideas about various ways of believing. One of the more interesting findings regarding Islam was that residents of Texas, 62%, were equally likely as residents of New York to believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same deity. In other words, evangelicals are unclear. 
that we have one God and one name by which we might be saved, must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. When I interact with people about their different religious beliefs, sometimes I'm told that the God of the Muslims, the God of Christianity is not the same, or they are the same. That's what I hear from people, and I'm quick to remind them that that's absolutely not true. The Quran specifically says that Allah has no son and forbids all to pray only to Allah and not to sons and not to anyone else. But the God of the Bible says that he has a son, his name is Jesus, and he came as God the Son to die on the cross to pay for our sins, to rise again the third day, and that we must pray only in the name of Jesus. Radically different ideas. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Or if you want, read the Quran. But both demonstrate they're not the same God. But here's Peter. Here's Peter. Saying there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. It's a clear declaration of the exclusive salvation given by God. Jesus said, I am the door. He said, I'm the bread. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the resurrection and the life. Can there be any doubt that Jesus saw himself as the one way for people to be saved? It's also a clear selection. No other name given among men. You see, this Bible is filled with statements that God the Father has clearly made for prophecy for thousands of years and then to the fulfillment of prophecy all in his son, Jesus Christ. God has made a clear selection. Only by my son, Jesus Christ, can anyone have salvation. Then there's a clear conclusion. There can be no other way. No, no other way to God through religion, through humanitarian works, through decency, through good motive, through altruism, through generosity, through kindness or monastic living, but only through the sufficiency of the life and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Only Jesus laid his life down as a sacrifice to pay for our sin. It's Jesus on the way to God or there's no other way to God. That's what the Bible says. So important. So important. Some say, well, that makes Christianity an exclusive religion. Oh, no, it's inclusive. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's inclusive. Anyone and everyone who will come, just like this woman at the well, just like this man who was healed, just like the 3,000 men, and then the 2,000 men that responded to Peter and John's message, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that an incredibly merciful, incredibly loving statement? In fact, Jesus saves. He does. It's not Allah, it's not Muhammad, it's not Buddha, it's not sainthood. Only Jesus can save. David Platt mentioned having a conversation with someone in a third world country some time ago. Now this person was reasoning with him about religion and about what he considered to be many ways to God. And he said, what if I told you that God was on the mountain peak and every member of the population must find their own way to him and however they get there in the many roads to the top of the mountain, they are accepted when they find their way to God, which is a very common belief in many places through the world. And David Platt said, well, what if I told you that God came down off that mountain through his son, Jesus Christ, so as to make one way for every person to be brought to God where we don't have to search for it on our own. We don't have to achieve it on our own, but he has come to us that he would bring us to God. What if I told you that? 
And that's really the message of the Bible. And it's the message of Peter. There is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question today as I close this message. What do you do with a message like that? What do you do with an offer like that? With a clear, undebatable, powerful, unmistakable statement only through Jesus. Because essentially the Bible says it's Jesus plus nobody. It's not Jesus plus church attendance. It's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus is either sufficient or he's not. And if he's sufficient, you put your whole trust and your whole faith in him. And if you're not believing that Jesus is sufficient, there's nothing you can add to him to make him sufficient. And that's the message of the New Testament church. And it continues to be. And every spiritual battle is an attempt to silence your witness of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. But don't shut it down. Embrace it. Share it. Look for the patience of God and the love of God to be demonstrated through your witness. And keep giving people the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the life of Jesus because that's how people are changed. I want you to bow your head for just a moment. Close your eyes. I'm having our counselors come to the front because it's an opportunity for us to respond to this clear message of Peter. And that is there's no salvation in any other name. Perhaps today you're a person that has felt like you have somehow earned eternal life or earned a good standing with God by things you've done or by some religious observance that you have had in your life. Maybe you believe that you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person, sincere about the things in life that you're passionate about. One of the best questions I can ask you is this one. If you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? And if your answer is anything other than only through the work and the person of Jesus Christ, then you must transfer your trust from whatever else you've trusted in and put it all in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And if his is a name to be saved by, his is a name to live for. I live for Jesus because I found my salvation in Jesus. I live for Jesus because I've been loved by Jesus. And that's true of all of us today. If we're living for him, it's because we've been loved by him. Over these next couple of moments, we're going to sing. And we're going to invite you to make a decision today to put your faith and trust in Christ or to come back to him perhaps. What an important moment for all of us. Would you stand, Father, in Jesus' name as we stand up and as we begin to sing, Lord, I ask that you move in our hearts. Let us respond spiritually, physically, in every way to this declaration of Jesus alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.